Hi everyone, it's Joachim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. Podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In this week's podcast episode, I'm talking with Hugo Obi, who is the founder and CEO of Malio Games, a mobile game studio based out of Lagos, Nigeria. In this discussion, we talk about the gaming ecosystem in Africa. How are things developing on the consumer side and on the development side? We also talk about Hugo's founder journey into gaming and what Hugo sees as the next steps in growing the games industry in Africa. The dilemma at the heart of mobile gaming. Monetizing your great work while keeping gamers engaged and not distracted by intrusive ads. Well, our partners on this podcast have a very clever solution. AudioMob delivers in-game audio ads so that game developers can monetize their players without interrupting gameplay. Audio ads are better at retaining happy gamers than video ads and can actually work alongside video ads too. This is all the while having much higher CPMs than banner ads, up to 600% higher. AudioMob's Unity plugin is simple to set up. It can take just minutes, allowing complete privacy control, and you can even reward players for extra gratification. Simple, clever, and rewarding. Go to audiomob.com for details and to speak to the team. All right, we're live. Hi, Hugo. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, man, it's it's so cool to, to talk to you about game game development, the games industry and the market in Africa and hear your background. And that's where I really wanted to start off. Uh, maybe you could tell me your origin story and how you made your way into gaming and to eventually found your own game studio, Malio Games. My journey is non conventional, if I can put it that way. My background is actually in economics and finance. And I started my career as a financial analyst in GE Capital in London, after studying um, economics and finance in Manchester. And after a couple of years, I think after the economic crisis in 2008, I, I started my first startup, which was a recruitment startup, again, based in London, helping large companies, Goldman Sachs, uh, Bank of America, Bank of England, Google, hire diverse talent from universities across the United Kingdom. A couple of years in, I realized that the potential for growth within that space was very limited and I wanted something really exciting. And a very good friend of mine at the time was actually running a very successful media company um, in Nigeria, an African media company, I think it turned out afterwards. And we were having a conversation around where the opportunities existed in Africa for tech. I was very keen on moving back to Nigeria at the time. Um, and he asked me to look into the gaming industry. Before then, obviously, you know, like anybody else, I, I played a few games growing up. I owned a PlayStation at some point, but I never really looked at gaming as a business. And when I did the research, I realized how lucrative and how large the gaming industry was globally. And then I asked myself, essentially did that sort of like um, reverse engineering, what would it take to build an African game? And is there an opportunity for an African game? This was at the time when mobile was growing. Mobile was the primary mechanism that people used to connect to the web in Africa. 
Um, so we started looking at, at mobile games. At the, at the time, this was back in 2012, um, there was a lot of fragmentation. You still had like BlackBerry, you had the Symbian OS, you had the Windows OS. Android was still very tiny. It was essentially like a, the wild, wild west back then in terms of what platform do you build for? And when I looked into it, I, I got super excited and I, I moved back and I decided to start a gaming company. And that's my, that's my origin story. What was kind of that moment of you founding the company? Because I, I wanted to hear a bit more of that. How did that actually like make sense then for you to do that studio? Yeah, good question. So there were two things. So one is from a company strategy production standpoint, I had a lot of experience there. I've built a startup. I know how to build products. I know how to build partnerships. I know how to build teams. So at least how to put together the factors of production in that sense. So I felt very competent in my ability to build an MVP, some kind of minimum version of what an African game would look like. The second thing was the fact that I knew that there were loads of very creative talents available in Nigeria, like the art space is booming. And this leads into the third thing, which was the rise of the movie and the music industry. Nollywood had become a thing, you know, from a production standpoint, from a consumer standpoint, you know, the quality is nowhere in comparison to what you get um, with Hollywood um, or even Bollywood at the time. But the demand was very high. People were just, you know, like consuming this locally created film. And Afrobeats, um, which is the Nigerian genre of music was exploding the music was going all across the world so there was that sense that we had the creativity it was just applying it within this new segment um, and then essentially seeing how the world reacted to it and the initial reaction was very strong was very positive people loved the concept of seeing characters that were localized people liked the idea of having titles that they could recognize um, and the two of our early hits at the time was a game called Mosquito Smasher, which was essentially uh, a play on mosquitoes and the epidemic of malaria. Um, and a game called Okada Rider, which, you know, like, I don't know if you know what Okadas are, but like, they're like, essentially, they were a, a very key means of transportation uh, because of the traffic gridlock that you have in most African cities, Lagos being a very good example of that. The motorbikes were a faster way to navigate through the city. Um, so they were very common. And we built a game called Okada Rider at the time. So it was the, the two first games that we built. And this was actually this were showcases of our concepts at, at the time. And this was back in 2012. Let's come back to your founder journey and the company soon. I, I wanted to hear more about the, the gaming scene in Africa. And starting by, let's talk about the, the differences between Africa and uh, the Western world. What are the main differences between that audience of mobile games and online games in general? Like what are some of the main apps that people are using, adoption of smartphones and things like that? I think the key difference between the Western market and the African market is discoverability. Your Western users are very familiar with the process of discovering content, exploring and deciding on what their preferences are. They've had this through multiple forms, be it television, radio, news. There's an abundance of information across the board and people have designed and developed mechanisms kind of like sifting through and categorizing and sort of like finding what they need and not necessarily consuming what is put in front of them. Your African consumers, I mean, you need to recognize the fact that um, most people first experience of the internet was through their smartphone. 
before then, they had very little or no experience of the internet. Like back in 2012, when we started, if you asked people if they used the internet as an example, they would say no. And if you ask them if they used Facebook, they would say yes. So, you know, like the understanding of what the internet was, this huge, you know, like library of information and what accessing or using it was like, they were, they were completely separate. So a lot of people would spend an incredible amount of time on a platform like Facebook, as an example, but will not actually go beyond that from a connectivity standpoint. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that is very similar today, where people would use a basket of apps, you know, like WhatsApp, Facebook, Instagram, and stuff like that. And maybe have very limited exploration beyond that. They might have a few news apps. And this had a huge impact on app discoverability. So what you found, especially with sort of like some of the low-end um, Android devices, is that they come pre-installed with basket of applications that, you know, like a news application, a shopping application, a financial fintech application, some entertainment apps, you know, like games and stuff. When people buy new devices in Europe, when you buy a new device, you take that device home and you set it up yourself. In Africa, a lot of people, when they buy devices, they actually have the setup of the devices in the market. And the individual who sells them the device has somebody else alongside them who's responsible for helping that user sort of like get the device set up and ready to use. And that process also includes installing of specific applications, entertainment, news, shopping, you know, like finance applications will fall within this within this basket. And, and this, I think, is a, a significant difference. You have to recognize the fact that Africa has a very large uneducated population. And this might also be the, part of the reason why. But the idea of first-time user experiences, obviously, they're much more intuitive now. And about the first time you got a, a smartphone, right? You know, like if you think about back then when we got our first smartphones, what we did for the first day or two was to read through the manual, right? You have to go through everything, understand the features, understand how they work, understand how to discover them. You know, most phones still today don't even have manuals anymore, right? Because most people just navigate or gravitate from one device to the next. Um, but if somebody gave you a completely new operating system, then essentially you're going back, which is kind of like why sometimes we maintain the same operating systems because we don't want to go through a, a learning curve. But I think like that is the key distinction. Uh, if I was thinking about like the, the consumer space uh, is that discoverability and that sort of like process of finding what people you know think they like. What about the, the monetization side? How has that changed in the recent years and what is happening next? To that opportunity? This is actually a great question. And I think it hasn't been answered yet, right? So when we launched in 2012, there were very few players in the market for gaming, very few, also very little investment at the time. And, and that sort of like was the case up until kind of like 2010, when we started seeing a few investments going into gaming studios, um, Carry First being, being one of them. And what that meant is that nobody in the continent had specifically focused on solving the payment problem. So we all understood what the payment options were. We all understood that they, that we weren't doing a very strong job on monetizing, but nobody had the financial resource or the mandate to actually go and try and solve this particular problem. So today, the payment options are still the traditional payment options, you know, like in our payments through, through the app stores, uh, which is dependent on credit cards. Obviously, ad-based monetization, subscription-based models, third-party payments through telcos, but none of these has scaled just yet. None of this has proven as kind of like a solution for, for unlocking the payment 
pain points for end users. But there is another question, which I think is, is equally as important. A, do people want to pay? And then the second thing is, can people afford to pay? Right? And this kind of like takes me onto a completely different world in terms of thinking around player motivation. We've seen in other segments that are not necessarily gaming, but like gamified. So the betting companies would be a very good example of that. They've demonstrated that people are willing to pay and are able to pay. And I think that we need to look at that as kind of like use that as a reference point to understand how we can design these kind of systems within our games that not only provide a payment mechanism, but also provides an incentive to want to pay. Because being able to pay is just one thing. Actually wanting to pay is a completely different thing. Um, and this is something that we are looking into really hard at Malia Games. So like the analogous to, to the Western world, where we were used to putting quarters into machines to get inter- entertainment, like, is that analogous to not having that cultural background in Africa for spending money for entertainment in this way? I think that the ease of payment has created a lot of new demand. In London, as an example, the fact that you can use your Apple Pay and your smartphone to pay for your ride on the tube or to pay at a supermarket or to pay in, in a restaurant means that the traditional excuse of, you know, I left my card at home or, you know, like I, I don't want to use my card, I don't trust the system is, is kind of like removed, right? And we become a little bit more intuitive if we are presented with options, right? We know that paying is not the challenge anymore. It's just the decision on if we want to, right? So I think having multiple payment mechanisms is something that just aids consumption overall. I remember a while ago, I was in Singapore and they had these vending machines and you could use, you could essentially text a bottle of Coke in the vending machine. So you could send a code via your phone and it would release a bottle of Coke. And this was innovative, right? It wasn't because Singapore didn't have card penetration. It's just offering more mechanisms where using your airtime as a form of payment is seen differently as paying using your bank card. There could be trust issues related to this, but it could just be convenience, right? Or ease, right? It's just, you know, a better mechanism for you. So it might be that there might be mechanisms that are more suited to Africans, right? And it's through multiple experimentations before we can actually say that this is what works, right? It might not be something that exists right now. A lot of people tend to think it is, but my view is that we need to also have the capacity and the capital to experiment, to then demonstrate what actually works. Then I wanted to ask about the the factors there on how people are making games. How is it different to be a game developer in Africa? Like, what does your day look like? My day personally is unstructured, right? But for the bulk majority, I think it's consideration, right? So obviously you have game developers in Africa that are building games for the world. And in their case, they are more aligned with, you know, global standards. They have partnerships and they have publishers that they work with and they specify what the requirements are. Um, And Africa itself is divided into three parts. So you have North Africa, which is not really the part of the continent that we speak about. You have Sub-Saharan Africa, which is the bulk of it. You know, Nigeria forms part of that. And then you have South Africa, which again is slightly different um, because it's a lot more mature. So most of my talk would be 
around sub-Saharan Africa um, because we do have similar challenges. Some of the big challenges that people face, um, for instance, is around infrastructure, like power is a big challenge. Cost of data is a big challenge. And these are costs that most of the developers would, would bear themselves. Hardware can also be a massive limitation and in most cases. So I'll give you a very good example of, of, of a hardware limitation. So it's not just specific to having the right type of computers. That obviously is, is part of that. But we were having a conversation about AR and exploring doing AR development. And I was speaking to one of my lead developers and asking essentially, have you ever explored AR? And is this something you'd be interested in? And he said, yes, he would absolutely be interested, but hasn't been able to explore it because his device essentially can't support AR. Um, And I said, but you are using an expensive high-end device. And he said, yes, but it doesn't support it. Um, And this is what I would call the limitations. We purchased a a brand new device for someone who just joined the team about $200 so that they can actually do product testing. And whilst doing that purchase, we didn't actually look into the fact, we didn't consider if the device itself supported AR. And it turned out that it doesn't, right? So these are things that, you know, I guess maybe we're just learning now and we would have to make more uh, informed decisions in the future. But you can see how that can limit somebody's scope to develop for something that they might want to develop for. So that's just one example of of the challenge that people face. I mean, like right now, one of the benefits of the pandemic is that we can trust people to work remotely. We've been forced to trust people to work remotely and we're seeing high productivity as a result. But before the pandemic, people had to come into the office. And in Lagos, where I live, you know, if you're unlucky, you could spend about six hours commuting. And it's not an easy commute, you know, like it's jammed traffic, leaving home at five o'clock in the morning, getting to the office at around, you know, eight o'clock, 8.30, leaving the office at four o'clock and not making it back home to around, around eight o'clock, nine o'clock. It's not inspired creativity. It doesn't inspire innovation mm-hmm. once you are locked into that. And thanks to the pandemic, we've been able to trust people to, to work at home. And that's given people the chance to demonstrate that they can be effective. Um, and that's now our de facto. And if we were a- ever going to ask people to come into the office, then we would consider providing accommodation because we need people to have the mindset to be able to create. Good. Really good one. Then thinking about the developing the gaming cluster in Africa, what needs to happen next to speed things up? I think there are four key areas that we need to focus on. So the first one is talent. The university isn't developing talents. Um, the local universities are not developing talents. People essentially, most game developers in sub-Saharan Africa are self-taught. The people who do go on to learn in universities or institutions are very few and far between. Most of the ones that I know, most of the ones that I encounter are self-taught. So we need to have a structured training program that can produce talent and develop talent for the industry. Two years ago, if I raised a million dollars in investment, one of the expectations would be that I can ramp up my team. If you gave me a million dollars, you know, two years ago, and you said, you know, go out and hire 10, 20 engineers, I couldn't do that. Nobody could. Nobody can. I mean, we, we are working on something at the moment that enables us to do that. But this is what I mean by talent, right? So it's not, it's not necessarily investment. You need to have the people who can build the content and you need to have them locally. You have to have a system for developing and cultivating that talent. So I think like that's one of the main things that I would, that we are working on and we're seeing a lot more emphasis and focus around, around that. The second is content. To inspire a lot more people to come into the industry, we need to create strong benchmarks. These are like content that meet global standards from you know, core mechanics to core systems, gameplay loops, monetization, user acquisition, player retention, and stuff like that. 
Uh, we are starting to see a few of those. There are a couple of studios that are working on very strong IPs, uh, but we need to see more of those. And we need to see them released and we need to see them succeed. Um, and it's not just engineering, you know, like there's a whole multitude of areas that we need to build competencies around. As a studio, we are vested in building competencies across the board. And this is really important. We need to see more focus on ensuring that they have a breadth of competence and not just mechanics or art. The other area is around investment. You know, I think that that would follow on as you start to see a strong talent base and you start to see some strong IPs coming through. It's a lot easier to attract more investment. But alongside that investment component is advisory. I think advisory is sometimes overlooked, but in some cases actually way more valuable than cash investment. So be careful who you get money from. It's kind of like my top advice, you know, get smart money in, not just any money. So we have seen a, a massive shift because we've been able to tap into some really experienced advisors for the studio. And that is really helping us build the company, build the competences, build the products, and, and obviously build the connections as well. Um, and then the last one um, is ecosystems. We need to see strong events, large events. Africa Games Week is an example of that that happened in February, and it will be happening again later this year, where... African developers can come together, share knowledge, share ideas around how they are individually, A, trying to grow their companies, B, trying to grow the industry. It's a massive market. I mean, like Africa currently has about 300 million smartphones. It's going to get to 500 in the next three years. There is a big ground for every single one of us to play in. Nobody needs to be the number one. Nobody needs to capture anything. There are so many ways we can approach this. We still have a strong and a huge opportunity to actually do cultural exports through the games that we create. So there's a global market of close to 2 billion players or 3 billion players that we can tap into. So, you know, not only is the African market a great playing ground, there's also the possibility of going beyond that. And I think that this idea of sharing knowledge, sharing experiences, sharing best practice is extremely valuable to build the companies and grow the industry. And one reason why I think we need to grow the industry in Africa is really around creating jobs and economic opportunities for the vast population. And there are so many like sub-segments. Gaming is not just about entertainment. You know, gaming can be applied into multiple industries, right? And some of the tools and techniques that are used in gaming can be utilized to build better products, to build new products and to, to create solutions for problems that we face in Africa. Right. Yeah, it's amazing opportunity. It's just mind-blowing. What do you think about this newly formed Pan-African Gaming Group and the future of this collaboration among studios and Do you see that there's a need for this? Yeah, that's a very good question. So I, I think the Pan-African Gaming Group is actually a good initiative. Fun fact, I was part of four studios, three of which are in the Pan-African Gaming Group, and we worked on a collaborative project back in late 2021. And this was the origin of this concept. However, as a studio, we have a vision that we're trying to execute, and I am responsible for driving that vision. And I think this is the same for everybody else. I think that the idea of collaboration is great. And we obviously and clearly collaborate collaborate with other studios. And we have, you know, like, again, like I mentioned, you know, with the Africa Games Week, it's great to come together and share knowledge, share best practices. The mechanism within which we do that varies. Every single studio in Africa can and should support an event like that. That can be the, the platform where the West can come in and understand what is happening in the continent, you know, identify partners and work with them. I personally, as a business and, and, and as a person, I don't necessarily see the need for a group like that in this sense. 
but I value the idea of collaborating. So I've, I'm just, I'm on the outside looking in essentially to see what the vision for this group is and how they execute on that vision. I am very clear on the vision for Malia Games uh, and I'm clear about the execution of that. And, and this is partly the reason why we are not in the group, but you know, like by all means, I think all of the leaders or all of the founders in the group have an understanding of what the vision is and they clearly believe that they can execute on it. Where do you see the African games industry going in five years? Um, according to a news, news report from 2021, Africa generated around 519 million US dollars in, in revenue from gaming. I think that this number should be somewhere around about 2 billion at the minimum for 2021. So this is an untapped capacity. Um, there's a lot of money on the table. I see companies like myself um, and a few others within the market who are trying to block the revenue and income potentials from this market and learn, you know, more players, more payments and more revenue, new jobs, new economic opportunities, a new industry, right? I see us having a thriving gaming industry. My numbers are just wild. Like, you know, I see at least at the minimum 5 billion in revenue from Africa. I see the gaming industry producing at least 30,000 jobs um, within that period. I see about a hundred studios that employ at the minimum 100 individuals, sorry, 100 studios that employ at least 50 people. I see smaller studios, a lot of micro studios. I see a lot of structure around production. Um, and I see the unlock of the African gaming consumer. And hopefully a couple of like unicorns as a result. That would be so awesome to see kind of that supercell of Africa emerge. I, I think we're getting there. I think that if you ask anyone, there has been, it's, it's like a snowball effect. We've been building momentum, but slowly. And now it's like literally accelerating. There's going to be a significant change in the next 24 months. You're already seeing that. I think I need you to come to Africa Games Week in December. And I think once you see the energy on the ground, you would understand that there is something about to happen, right? And right. the great thing yeah. is that it's been driven by Africans, um, not by externals. Obviously, the, the need for partnership and collaboration would always remain. But, you know, like it's literally full steam ahead from the African studios. Let's go into your founder journey and talk about some of the biggest challenges from building your game studio, what barriers have you encountered that that felt like really hard challenges? The biggest challenge that we encountered right from the offset was hiring technical talent. It was impossible to hire technical talents back in 2012. So we used to offshore all of our technical needs. And this carried on for a very long time. And, you know, like in 2020, in 2019, I realized that this was not sustainable, that we had to do something around it. You know, the challenge with hiring local technical talents was because they were self-taught, they had different mechanisms and approaches. So when you hire two or three different people, the way that they approach problems were very different. And that made for very low productivity. It created a lot of friction and obviously ended up with failed projects and missed expectations. What we decided to do to solve this problem was to essentially create an in-house academy where we created an internal curriculum and anyone who was applying to work in the company had to go through that and then come out at the end and funnel into the company as an intern. Whether you had experience or not, that was the process. This has been, I would say, the most innovative thing that we've done since our inception. Because what it has enabled us to do is essentially to look ahead, confident that we have the talent to be able to sustain our growth. 
that we can pull the pipeline, right? And keeping that pipeline going. I mean, like, again, Africa has a lot of like technical talents and abundance of technical talents, you know, thanks to training programs and, and training, training bodies like Andela as an example, who are a, a unicorn that do training and, and, and offshoring um, or, or outsourcing work in Africa. There are very few opportunities in tech for people to be self-sufficient. And there are very few opportunities in tech for people to merge creativity with technology. So there's a lot of interest in what we do. And, and when we created this training program, we partnered with Google to scale this up, but we re received over a thousand applications in our first year. And we only had about 300 spaces available. Um, and what this enables us to do is essentially is create a strong funnel for future talent, for the organization and also for the industry, because this problem is a problem that everybody else faces across gaming, across the continent. So that's the biggest challenge that we face. The other challenge that we have faced is monetization and having a very clear monetization strategy. We haven't solved that yet, but what we have done is to design systems and processes that enables us to experiment and understand what is working and what is not, and to be able to amplify what's working and then obviously do it all over again. Our design and development philosophy is to try multiple approaches, have strong data analytics at the backbone of making decisions. If we are able to throw loads of stuff on the wall, eventually we'll figure out why some of them stick and why some don't. Um, and then we're going to double down on the things that make them stay. That's really cool. What are you working on right now that you're most excited about? Can you talk about some of the, the projects that you have going on at your studio? Yeah, absolutely. The, the stuff that we're working on right now are stuff that we already have out. So we have two flagship games, I like to call them. We have a card game um, called What King, which essentially is a card matching game very similar to Uno, different set of rules, but very similar. So, you know, circle by circle, four and four, that kind of thing. We launched that back in 2020. Uh, we've got over 100,000 installs. It's doing well from a, a user, a US standpoint. Retentions is not that great, but it's a fun game. You know, one that I, I very much love and like. And then we have a game that we released a beta version of um, late last year called Down for Racer. Uh, it's a racing game, racing the popular mode of transportation in Lagos called the Down for Bus. Um, it's a cultural icon across the city of Lagos. So, you know, like some of the city landscapes. It's only an Android. So if you get a chance to play it, you might get uh, sort of like a, a nice little hint of the sound and the, the scene of Lagos if you've never been. So those two games already exist. Um, what we're doing right now is to improve on that. We're building better gameplay systems within. We're building better core game game loops. Essentially, we're trying to drive up the, the, the player retention metrics for each of those games. Um, and then we're doing a lot of like experimentations around monetization. So, you know, offering player incentives to improve the monetization for those, those two games. So our focus for the next six months essentially is refining and improving those two games while still jamming, you know, developing like new prototypes, right, in the background. But it's to get those two games to a point where we're very comfortable with the retention numbers, the engagement numbers, um, and the revenues that they are able to generate and build better systems for those games. It's super exciting because... What we're essentially designing is a long-term support for existing games where we can have like live ops within the game. We can build um, strong long-term player LTV um, and understand that balance between UA cost um, and the LTV uh, value that we're able to generate for the games and then scale that the user numbers up through paid UA. That sounds like there's 
there's so much to explore there. Definitely exciting times. Very much so, very much so. Before we go to the final questions, what are your personal goals? Uh, are you in it to make these games that every African will play or build a big business? What, what kind of things are you passionate about? Actually both. So my, my goal is to build the most recognizable tech brand out of Africa. And I'll tell you what that means. When you obviously look at tech, you know, like e-commerce, fintech, edtech, you know, like all the different verticals. Some of those brands are not known beyond the shores of their countries just because of, of the market that they serve and then the regulatory requirement for them to kind of like transition into new markets. A lot of the big African tech brands would probably never have any reason to play in the European markets because it's a small market segment that they would play for. With gaming, obviously, we don't have that issue. You know, like a game is a game at the core of it, like it's game mechanics, uh, like whether you have African characters or non-African characters or whether it's based on on African environment using Danfo Race as an example. Um, it's a racing game, right? You can have a multitude of cars in the scene. is fun and interesting and people want to engage with it. And our core vision is to build fun African-inspired games for mobile. So at the core of that is the fun component, so it has to be enjoyable. And then the second one is this kind of like cultural identity. And, and that is reflected in a lot of like colors, a lot of design choices that we make, and you know, like how we apply those with, within the game. And we see an opportunity to build a game that can be a global hit. We see the opportunity to build something that would be played by players. I mean, like today, our game is played by players from all over the world but essentially be a top hit in multiple categories across the world. That's, that's the long-term vision. And in doing so, become Africa's most successful, most recognized um, tech company. I don't see any reason why not. That is the ambition that we have. Cool. Let's go to some final questions, Hugo. What is your favorite book and why? I, I thought about this a lot. And I, I think everyone who's on this show has to really think about this, you know, like, because like, The idea of a favorite book, yeah, you have to look backwards, right? Um, and then ask yourself, what books have you read? But I think mine is not necessarily my favorite book, but I think of a book that has a lot of like, that had a lot of impact in terms of like how I think and kind of like connected in a way that has shaped some of the decisions that I make and, and we are making. I don't know if you've ever heard of um, Dead Aid by um, Damdisa Moyo. This is a book on economics. Obviously, I've got an economics background. Um, the book was written in 2009, just after the financial crisis. And the book explores the idea that aid to Africa isn't the right mechanism for development for Africa. And it explores multiple ideas around this. But one of the ideas that was proposed in the book, which I connected with, was this idea of Africa's development builds around job creation. And I feel like this is something that resonates with me very well. And, and maybe this is also what inspired me to go into gaming. If gaming is a $180 billion industry globally and doesn't have any geographic restriction, this could actually create a very strong opportunity to create meaningful jobs and economic opportunities for Africa's passionate and really enthusiastic youth population. There is no limit. The barrier to entry is, is actually quite low, right? You need a computer, you need access to the internet, and you're good to go. But anybody in any corner of the world can build a game in the same way that anybody in the corner of the world who has a smartphone can essentially create a, a video. And what it enables you to do is to tap into a global market. There are very few industries that provide that. And if you're technically gifted and creatively gifted, 
there's no reason why you shouldn't try to create something. And you don't even need to think about the global market. Even your local market alone is sufficient. Having everybody in your community, creating a game for your church, you know, like creating a game inspired by something that, you know, you did in school can be a fun experience. You know, I've got two kids. Like I try to encourage them to not think too far. If you're trying to create something, create it for your classmates. Don't go beyond that. Just create something that everyone in your class would like to play and enjoy playing. You know, maybe then the class next door, everyone starts to play. Then before you know it, the whole school is playing it. Then the school next door is playing it. Before you know it, it becomes, you know, like a, a sensation, right? But don't yeah. think about, you know, like the people in, in New York or the people in Tokyo when developing a, a game. You know, think about the person next to you in doing that and let that be the origin of your, of your sort of like creativity. That's really good. Do you have a story that has shaped you and how you approach your work today? Wow. I think my growing up had a huge impact. I grew up in an African family, grew up in Lagos, Nigeria, a very busy town. And I think that there are loads of people who are super talented and can achieve a great deal. And for some reason, they never have the opportunity to even try. And they underachieve massively because no one provided them with the right support infrastructure, with the right environment to try. So one of the impact that has in the program that we designed, for instance, is in designing this program, we designed the curriculum, we facilitate the, the delivery of it, even though it's kind of like um, self-paced and project-based. So everyone is learning at their own time, but we do some facilitation at the back end. We provide learning allowances for our participants. So we, we essentially are trying to make it easy for them to learn because we're looking for the individuals that demonstrate. We're looking for three key competences, right? So one is commitment, right? Are you committed? Do you want to do this? Are you competent? Are you able to understand the material, right? And then the last one is, are you creative? Are you actually able to create something that is fun and engaging? And I've had the opportunity to live in England. I've traveled the world as well as grew up in Nigeria and obviously live in Nigeria. The environment in England provides such opportunities for you that allows you to try. In Nigeria, the system doesn't do that. So you are on your own and that's unfortunate. So this is the first step that we can take. And there are multiple more steps that we can take, you know, and, and this is what is driving and inspiring me to see all of these individuals just showcase their potential greatness, right? And no one ever looked, no one ever tried, nobody ever, if they cared, if they were interested, right? You know, like I said, we, we want to train about 10,000 people over the next five years. And I think like that's a bold ambition, but maybe we can even surpass that ambition, right? You know, like it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's accessible online. So if you have, I mean, we do have like requirements for like entry and stuff like that. But in theory, if you have access to the internet and you're, you're keen, you know, like we can get you on the program and essentially train you on how to develop a game. And then everything beyond that is essentially a conversation around where do you want to go? You know, do you want to join Malia? Do you want to set up your own studio? Do you want to go work somewhere else? There is no mandate for you to join Malia when you join the program. We're just training you up on how to develop games based on our philosophy. Hey, hey Hugo, I'm going to throw you the last question, which is like, if there's people out there who want to hear more about what you're doing and the ecosystem in Africa, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? So LinkedIn, I don't, I don't use social media. 
but I guess, you know, like LinkedIn doesn't count, but LinkedIn is a great platform and a great tool, you know, connect with me on, on LinkedIn is Hugo OB. I'm sure Joachim would, would drop the link to my LinkedIn profile in the description yeah. or reach out to me and let me know. We are very keen on, on having mentors, having advisors or partnerships, you know, having conversations around how some people have done it in other parts of the world and sharing this kind of like growth story with the world. Amazing. Hey, thanks, Hugo. This is so informative, so good. I uh, can't wait to, to see you again soon <laughs> somewhere at the conference, hopefully. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Take care, man. Bye bye. If you like our content, please hit follow or subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is available. And in the meantime, please go and check out our website at elitegamedevelopers.com and sign up for our weekly newsletter on what's happening in gaming startups. See you next time, guys. Bye-bye.